Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today we go into the second to the last message in our Upper Room series. And just to remind you, it's all about intimacy with Christ. And this is perhaps the most intimate time because we actually bear into the heart of Jesus. The question would be, what if you could actually come alongside and hear Jesus talking directly to the Father for an extended period of time? And what deep truths would he be passionate about? Well, we actually have that in John 17. So we'll cover the first two subjects today and get to the third one next week. So the first two things that Jesus prays for are glorification and protection. Not two things that would have stood out for me as for me to think of for praying. The first, glorification, and what's gonna surprise you and me is the doorway that leads into glorification. The second thing he prays for is protection, and what's surprising there is it seems to be akin to sanctification, even the great doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. Hold on to that one, we'll come back to it. And the third one from next week is oneness and unity. You know, I used to read this third part, oneness and unity, and look at the fractured body of Christ with all of its opinions, and I definitely feel that at the end of this COVID season. Like, everybody is so divided and opinionated. I think, will we ever come together? And so I read Jesus' prayer for unity, and I think, well, not everybody gets their prayers answered, maybe even Jesus. But with all three of these things, glorification, protection, and unity, I think the prayer is still being answered. It has been answered over the last 2,000 years in various ways, but it's still being answered in your life and in my life. So let's begin in verse one of chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Isn't that interesting? He prayed like this, as opposed to with his head bowed and his eyes closed. Head up eyes open. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. Now this is eternal life. Listen, the word there is zoe, which doesn't mean length of life, but it means abounding in life. This is abounding life that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's where we need to look for life. Verse four, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, here's the prayer. Father, glorify me. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What kind of glory did the Son of God have before the world began? 
So let's dig into this whole prayer here for glory. First of all, this seems to be a key term in the Gospel of John, used over a dozen times in various chapters other than chapter 17. Then once you get into chapter 17, it's used nine times in just seven verses. So really key verse, key key term rather. So what does it mean? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament and look at the word kavod, you realize the word for glory has its origin in the idea of weight. That is, someone was, was full of glory if they were weighty, heavy. Back in the 70s, that used to be an adjective to describe something that was really cool. Heavy, man. God is heavy. The things of God are heavy. They're weighty. They're difficult for us to hold up. They're so substantive. Maybe its origin comes from wealthy men that maybe would have put a bag of gold onto a weight and they'd see the weight go way down and that person was somehow substantive and weighty, a person to respect. But God is the ultimate weighty person. So what a great question. What is the glory of God all about? What makes him weighty? Hold on to that. And then in the New Testament, the Greek word is doxa, out of which we get our word doxology, which is to speak a word about God's glory. So that's really what this first half of the sermon is all about in this prayer, is a a word about God's glory. So when you and I think of the glory for a person, we think of a person maybe standing in a ticker, ticker tape parade. We think of them holding up their trophy on, on a stage or something where this weighty moment, this glorious moment is happening. But one of the early occurrences of this word Glory in the Old Testament is where Moses prays to see the glory of God. What is he praying for? I don't think he really knows. He just knows that he can't see the glory of God and live. So God says, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. My glory, my kavod will pass by you. And guess what happens? You can read it in Exodus 34, verse 6. The glory of God passes by and Moses never tells us what the hind or rear part of God's glory even looks like as it goes by. But what he hears is the glory of God. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding with love, maintaining love for thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet he is a just God who who will judge those who refuse to repent. So there you have it. That is God's own self-description of his glory. What will you see when you see the glory of God? What is Jesus praying for to be reinstated with the glory of God before the beginning of time that finally... 
he will be manifest as the gracious and the compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding with love, maintaining love for thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. The glory of God is L-O-V-E. That's what makes him amazing. It's embedded in you and me. We want love. We, we long for love. Where do we find love? We rarely look back to the source of love himself. And, and when we get to heaven, what will we see? And maybe what will we feel penetrating our being? Could it be love? And isn't that what Jesus' entire incarnational life was all about? So as we go on here in this passage, we're talking about John's use of God's, of, of glory. And in John 1.14, let me take you all the way back to the beginning of the, the book, just to get the beginning sense of this word. It has to do with the incarnation. We think of Christmas as being beautiful, but John thinks of it as glorious. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The shepherds saw the glory. The wise men saw the glory. The one and only who came to the Father full of, here it is, love and truth. And now here, he's asking to be taken out of his incognito state to be reinstated with that same glory that he had in the beginning. But guess what? He has to pass through a doorway. And that doorway is often the doorway to glory. It's the cross. Tomorrow, after his prayer, will be the cross, a full day of suffering. Three days after that, a resurrection. And then 40 days after that, an ascension. So the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension are all passages that lead to the ultimate glory that he's praying for. Here's something that's interesting in the prayer is that he wants to share his glory with you. Tag, you're it. Listen to this. In verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. We'll talk about unity next week, but the one in each other, that kind of unity is speaking of love. And for us to taste of the glory of God is to taste of his love that he's praying for you and me. So the disciples, when Jesus was ministering, they actually saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, where he went up and he appeared uh, with Moses and Elijah and he glowed. And that's a glimpse but that's the, the visual glimpse of glory. But the substantive glimpse is what, what is glowing. It, it's his love, it's his nature, his personality that he has invited us into through this whole salvation process. 
In John 11, 49, Jesus says, and this is in regards to the Lazarus death and resurrection, Jesus says to the women, his, brother, his sisters, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see, here it is, the glory of God? Didn't I tell you, Mary and Martha, that if you believe, believing into me is key, who I am as the Christ, but you would see the glory of God. And then the very next thing, he says, Lazarus, get up. Meaning that was part of God's glory, seeing Jesus raise something, someone from the dead. In Philippians 2, I think the glory of God is summarized fabulously by the Apostle Paul. Paul is wrestling with the disunity in the Philippian church. There's a lot of pressure coming in from the outside, kind of like the church today. And they begin to take it out in, on each other. You're not enough of this and you should be more of that and this kind of thing. And Paul asks a rhetorical question. Is there any unity? Is there any love? Then make me happy by being of the same purpose, the same spirit. And you ask, how do we do that? And he answers it with the glory of God. He says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, glory, he gave it up and humbled himself, the incarnation, and became a man. And being found in the likeness of a man, he humbled himself further, being found as a servant. And being found as a servant, he humbled himself further and went to die for you and me, and not just any death, but he went further and died the on the death of a cross. So it says, out of that great humbling and humility, God has highly exalted him. You could transfer that into, has given him glory, exalted him far above every name, both in of, of tongue, persons in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus will be exalted, but the way up is down. I love the fact that God is so confident in who he is that he doesn't have to go for false glories because he knows what true glory is. True glory is being humble. True glory is being kind. True glory is being loving and gentle. And now he invites us to share in that same glory that he is and has always been. So Jesus is praying, God, now take me out of this incognito state where nobody really knows and reinstate me but it's going to happen through the cross. Hold on to that and now move on to the second prayer with me, which is a prayer for protection. In this prayer for protection, I feel like I'm reading the heart of a mother. This is Jesus uh, having this maternal heart of protection for his disciples. Let me read the entire passage to you. I'm gonna begin in verse six. I have revealed you to those, speaking of Jesus to the Father, 
whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. That is the gospel, the good news. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you and I have given them the words that you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. Now I pray for them and I'm not praying for the world but for those you have given me for they are yours. Notice the distinction. The world is a tough place to pray for but he, hold on. He's gonna send them into the world but he's praying for them. Verse 10, all I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them and I will remain in the world no longer but they are still in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Here's the prayer. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them, second use of the word, and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may be full, have the full measure of my joy with them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So much to dive into here. This is such a deep, deep prayer. So we only have a few moments here. Uh, the first thing that strikes me is the value God puts into you. He says, you gave me, back in verse six, the ones you gave me and they have obeyed your word. Uh, Jesus honors the fact that these disciples that are following Jesus, the father gave to Jesus and Jesus has been taking care of them, protecting them because they're valuable. Same way he looks at you and me. Then the second thing that stands out is this love yet adversarial relationship with the world. On the one hand, we know from John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God loves this fallen society, this fallen world. He, not the fallenness of it, but the people that are in it. Yet, he warns us here as he does in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, nor anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Look at verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. Um, verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world. Verse 15, my prayer is not for 
you to take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. So you see this dilemma that God loves the world, but the world is dangerous. Now, what is the world? The world in John, the word is cosmos, is fallen society, fallen culture that is anti-God. And he's warning us to be very, very careful about that. And I'll unpack that a minute for you because it's probably not exactly what you expect it to be. So this is serious business that Jesus is praying for this protection. The next thing I see here is that we are the sent ones. In verse 18, that's exactly what he calls us. He says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So even though he's wanting us to be protected from the world, he's sending us into the world. A lot of times throughout church history, the world, the church rather, has withdrawn from the world. Whether it's a monastery or a castle, we're away from the world and we're pointing at them as being evil, pointing at them as being bad. And sometimes we're even taking pot shots of what's wrong with them rather than being sent into the world at high risk in order to bring to them the love of Christ. So the protection is over us while we're being sent into the world. This is very much akin to Matthew 6, excuse me, 10, 16, where Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. C.S. Lewis writes about this very idea when he talks about you and I being like paratroopers who have landed behind enemy lines waiting for the rest of the troops to arrive. That's where we are. Jesus hasn't come a second time yet again. He hasn't established his full kingdom here on earth, but we are here behind enemy lines sent by God. Why? Why? So that you and I can bring other people to the same love that we have discovered in Jesus. The final thing I'll point out to you in this great passage on the perseverance of the saints, this protection, is the idea of obedience. We're not passive. Even though God is, Jesus has prayed for us and God is the one that's protecting us, we're not automatons that are just passive, allowing God to do all the work. There's one thing he's asking of us. It's the word obey and believe. Verse six, it says, they have obeyed your word. Verse 14, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, here's the big catch that I want you to see here in this second prayer of, for protection. A lot of times when we think of protection, we're thinking of outside attacks that would be against our body. And so we need armor to protect us. But what Jesus is actually talking about is sanctification. 
because he changes the word towards the end of the prayer. Instead of saying protect them, he says sanctify them. So Jesus doesn't actually protect us from the harmful things they might say about you and me, and he doesn't protect us always from the harmful things they might do to us. Think about this. 70 million Christians have been martyred from the time of Christ till now. Half of those in the 20th century. The last two million in the 21st century. So is God not answering? He is answering the prayer. But how is he answering the prayer protecting us? He's protecting you and I from the world. What is the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. It's these things that grab a hold of your soul, that make you covet, make me covet, make me envy, make me proud, make me lustful, make me want, 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 get, 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 get. These things are the things that will do me in. And so isn't it good to know that Jesus has prayed for you and me. And as we believe, we are protected. This is exactly what is said in Pilgrim's Progress when a pilgrim is Christian, is fighting against Apollyon. And he says, you cannot touch me, speaking against that dragon, Apollyon. He says, for I am on the path of holiness, the path of sanctification, the path of protection. So it's not a safe world out there. And when the world is in the church, the church is not a safe place. But as we are looking at Jesus, who has prayed for us to be protected, we are safe. Now, let me pull these two concepts together, glory and protection. All that glitters is not gold what often pulls us off the pathway is false glories. Things that I want, things that I think I need, things I, I want to get. And these things pull on my heart. What they actually are are false glories. It's exactly what happened to Judas Iscariot. The false glory of some pieces of silver instead of loyalty loyalty to Jesus. So all that glitters is not gold. I would not have expected Jesus to pray either of these two prayers. And the third one we'll get to next week. Oneness, unity. But how beautiful is it for you and I to think of that there is something that's absolutely beautiful, glorious, uh, full of meaning, full of truth, full of love, and that is the face of God found in Jesus Christ. Yeah. The glory you long for, the glory you will one day share in, is the glory we have discovered in Jesus Christ. And because that is the true gold, we want to stay protected away from all these other glittering things. And Jesus has prayed for you and me. And we will persevere. We will emerge.
And it may be even through suffering. It may be through our cross that we take up daily, but we will see the glory of Christ. Won't that be a great day to actually stand before Christ and feel and see and know the glory we've always wanted to behold is right in front of us. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, there's a image here that is parallel to this in the Lord of the Rings. You knew I'd bring in the Lord of the Rings somewhere, didn't you? Well, in the Lord of the Rings, Frodo is trying to get this little ring into the volcano, Mordor, right? And that's going to set Middle Earth free from this great darkness that has come over the land. But what happens throughout the journey? What happens is that this little ring becomes a temptation for false glory. What he has to do is to get rid of it, but it becomes the temptation that if I just wore the ring, look what could happen for me. And he wrestles through that temptation, not just Frodo, but many of the other characters in the story. All that glitters is not gold. And finally, Frodo throws it into the fire with visions of true glory, which for him was the Shire. Folks, what we have believed in before we went into this pandemic is more true than ever before. We long for all kinds of things to get better and all kinds of things uh, to get right. But I hope that in this time of purging, we don't forget the true glory, the true weight that we've come to believe is the answer to our souls, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. And even now, Lord, we turn our hearts away from the false glories around us that I could be happy if only this ha could happen. I could be happy if only that. To just say, Lord, here we are stripped of everything. Lord, we declare you to be the weighty, substantive, glorious person that we truly long for. Lord, would you come in afresh into our lives? Would you come in and awaken our souls from ever believing in these false glories? Forgive us for our, our, our greed. Forgive us for our division. Forgive us for our, our hatred and our bitterness. Forgive us for our lust and our animosity. Forgive us for all of this stuff and protect us. Keep us on the straight and narrow to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.